0: has been an awakening. Have you felt it? The dark side. And the light.
1: Something is wrong. The stick isn't responding and my power levels are dropping like gorseberries berries out of a womp rat. I've got no way to land this thing!
2: Use the force, youngling.
1: Is that you, Blinny Ding Dong? My Jedi instructor?
2: You do not need your instruments, youngling. The Force is strong in you.
1: But in Academy, you told me many times that it wasn't.
2: What is your name again?
1: Kyone Wolfwalker.
2: (laughs) Oh god, I thought you were someone else. You're right, you have almost none of the Force. It's like those pomegranate juice drinks where you look at the ingredients and there's like trace amounts of pomegranate. Could you,
1: I don't know, try to be more encouraging or something?
2: Yes, yes, of course. Look around you, young Wolfwalker. What do you see?
1: I see a long, thin ribbon of blackness with nothing on it.
2: That's the busway. Forget that.
1: No, I think I can do it. I can land my viper on the busway.
2: Of course you can. (laughs) Uh, So what you're going to do is turn off all your instruments and use the force to land on the busway. (laughs)
1: Are you (laughs) laughing at me?
2: No, no. Sometimes the force builds up in me and it kind of squirts out and makes that noise. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going in. Have yourself a bunch of Force happiness.
1: You're supposed to say, may the Force be with you.
2: Yes, that would
3: you say. May the Force be with you.
1: (laughs) I did it! I did it! You didn't believe in me, Blinny Ding Dong, but maybe the Force is stronger than you thought. There's an energy that guides the universe, and it made sure they wouldn't finish this busway for years and years, so it would be empty for me today. So get ready for the scramble. And now he hates it that right after Wookiee Republic Day, they start playing force carols for a whole month. Colin McEnroe.
4: I don't even really turn on the radio. That's how sick of them I get. Um, Actually, to understand what you just heard, well, it might take a lifetime, really, but um, you would have to know that somebody in a small plane did crash land onto the otherwise unused busway uh, over the weekend. As Paul Harvey would say, nope, only his pride. Good day. All right. So today on The Scramble, we have some serious things to talk about and maybe some uh, more lighthearted things to talk about. We're going to start serious. Uh, I'll tell you what that is in just a second. And then we'll get more lighthearted towards the uh, middle of the show. Beloved Connecticut author Wally Lamb will be with us. His uh, book Wishing and Hoping uh, has been turned into a lifetime movie of the week or a TV movie. It may not be a movie of the week. I'm going to say it actually is a movie of the week. I'm going to officially make it a movie of the week. In any case, Wally is, in addition to being the beloved author, is the executive producer. I think it's going to be fun. Knowing what I know or already know, it's going to be fun to talk to Wally about his experiences coming out from behind the typewriter, as it were, and uh, starting to deal with people who are upset about the catering or something like that. Anyway, um, and then towards the end of the show, you're going to meet kind of a brand new, well, not that brand new, but a new Twitter celebrity uh, and um, a guy who really has sort of taken academia to Twitter via a presence on Twitter called the Nine Quarterly. That's not a nine the number, that's nine the German no. So this is sort of nihilism for the masses. And I will tell you more about it uh, towards the end of the show. We're very privileged and uh, happy to have with us Howard Bryant uh, from ESPN, the magazine, uh, to talk to us uh, specifically uh, about what happened this Sunday, what happened this Sunday specifically in the St. Louis Rams game. Uh, If that name, Howard Bryant, sounds familiar to you, that's because you've been hearing him also on NPR's Weekend Edition Saturday with Scott Simon. So, um, Howard Bryant, welcome to the show. And uh, let's, let's begin at the beginning. Uh, what happened on Sunday was that um, at least five of the St. Louis Rams players kind of emerging from the tunnel uh, to have their formal inter- introductions raised their hands in, in that don't shoot gesture, which has kind of become part of the iconography uh, of the Ferguson crisis. Um, I'll, I'll sort of let you take it from there. I mean, maybe just begin by saying um, uh, what was the reaction? Did, what was the overall reaction to this gesture?
0: Well, I, I think it depends on where you're looking. Yeah. Uh, my vantage point, I, I thought it was tremendous. I thought it was exactly what we've been asking when it comes to professional athletes. And so much, so many times you hear, why aren't these million dollar players getting involved? Especially the Rams themselves, considering they're just a few miles away from Ferguson. And I think that. I think that the, the non-indictment verdict, whether it's the Rams, whether it's Kobe Bryant, or if you're on Twitter with David West and a lot of different players, I think you're seeing a bit of an awakening. I think you're seeing something of a tipping point where the players are recognizing that they can really no longer sort of hide behind the tinted glass of their escalades. I think they realize that they're part of this as well, considering that they may have the money to keep their kids from going to a broken public school system or living in poor neighborhoods. But the reach of this is something that it, that they can't ignore. Maybe they don't want to ignore. I thought it was tremendous. On the other hand, you had the St. Louis Police Officers Association demanding that these players be disciplined, which was just another show of force of another kind that I think went over very poorly. The NFL responded that it would not discipline any of the players for exercising their their right to expression
4: yeah actually uh we, we can even hear a little of jeff rurda he's a spokesperson for the st louis police officers association responding uh, negatively uh, about this it, it's an
3: accusation against law enforcement that we find not only offensive but inflammatory at a time that that we hope that uh, a community dialogue can can happen between the police and the communities of color that uh, to
4: feel some resentment towards law enforcement so um, and, and, and um, much of his other responses seemed a little eared about this whole thing, uh, saying you know uh, haven't they looked at the thousands of pages of evidence that were uh, part uh, of the grand jury? Well, actually no, probably not, but also for for many Americans, certainly not exclusive to members of the NFL or members of any particular subcommunity, this sort of It isn't really over. It isn't really resolved. There's a lot of lingering unhappiness. Sure,
0: there is. And I think one of the areas of the unhappiness is this false equivalency and these, these false narratives that any time a community says or expresses disappointment with the police or with law enforcement, that it automatically will create unrest. The unrest came when this kid got shot. Mm-hmm. That, that's the root of the unrest. It wasn't even... Actually, it wasn't even him getting shot that was the root of the unrest. The real root of the unrest was the was the belief that there was going to be no punishment, that there was not even not even a punishment. There wasn't even an indictment to decide if there was going to be punishment. And so to constantly blame the communities and then to blame people for feeling some of this outrage, especially coming from a guy like Reuter who was one of the people who tried to have legislation written into the, the Missouri Code that prevented any sort of sunshine law whatsoever, that the police weren't going to be held accountable for any of their actions. He's exactly part of the problem. He's part of the reason for the resentment.
4: So there, one of the counter arguments that gets made to against athletes speaking their minds or voicing their convictions or making displays of the kind that the the Rams players made on Sunday is that sports is kind of a neutral ground, right? That uh, that everybody watches the St. Louis Rams uh, in in the greater St. Louis area. The cops watch it. The people in Ferguson watch it. Yeah, it's the unifying uh, force. Yeah, unifying force. And and people don't go there to have their consciousness raised or to hear some kind of counter narrative. They go. They watch the football game. They go there uh, in order to get away from everything. So, what's your response to that?
0: Well, my response is that it's nonsense. And the response is, and I remember this. I remember I grew up in Boston, and I remember when we had the massive unrest with desegregation. And a lot of the players, some players spoke, some players didn't. The attitude back then in the 70s was no news on the sports page. And that idea has been bandied about. For decades, do players have the right to speak up or do we simply watch them and want them to perform? Post 9-11, it's a ridiculous argument because there's no place in America that has become more politicized post 9-11 than sports, whether it's the flyovers, which they had before, but now they have them all the time. It's the introduction of God bless America. It's the introduction of singing police officers and singing military and military tributes, the militarization on the politicization of, of sports is greater than any other element of our culture. And so to see the Ferguson protest, I think balances it out a little bit. It's like, you can't have it both, you know, you can't have it both ways. Can you, can you, can you force the players? And by the way, the players are forced. It's in Major League Baseball forces these teams to support a lot of these actions, whether it comes to God bless America in the seventh inning, or whether it comes to the, the monies that go to certain charities that, that immediately go to military families and all of these things. It's not necessarily a bad place to put your money, but to be told that that's what you have to do immediately takes away the neutrality of sports. It makes sports an active agent in what's happening. So I think that it's a great thing that the players decide that, hey, these are causes that we care about as well. I think it balances the scales a little bit.
4: Now, the, I mean, the, the argument from the other side is, um, and, and it's an argument that, that you made earlier, I think back in September, uh, writing a, a piece called Divided They Stand, is that there's some, something still a little puny about all this. Uh, in other words, these five players, their their story is they kind of decided to do it on the spur of the moment as they were emerging from the tunnel. There wasn't a lot of planning that went into it. There certainly wasn't any kind of massive across the NFL multi-franchise uh, display of solidarity mm-hmm. with the people of Ferguson. Or
0: even on the team.
4: Yeah, yeah, or even on the team. It's five players on one team. It, it doesn't seem like very—I mean, even I would even contrast it to in the middle of Arizona's uh, turmoil about, about its uh, immigration law and its sort of stop-and-ask-questions policy. The Phoenix Suns came out in Los Suns uniforms, which is clearly the franchise even, uh, getting behind this whole idea of, of more inclusiveness and more warmth towards the Latino community. Um, even compared to that, which was minor, this seems like very—like not very much— why, would, why weren't players all over the NFL walking onto the field with their hands up? Well,
0: because I think that, once again, one of the issues that we talk about is what do we care about? And I think that you have players. Players spend a lot of time concentrating on themselves. Players spend a lot of time as you know, listening to people because they are so concentrating on what they have to do on the field. And they're also inundated by all of their money people that taking a stand and saying anything is going to negatively affect your brand. That you're not a person anymore. You're a product, and you sell products. And so you're selling yourself, and you're selling your product. And the last thing you want to do is alienate anybody who might buy your product. And so players are traditionally hesitant to get involved. And also, I think, on, on the other hand, too, it's important to remember that not all the players are up on all the issues. So I think that it's great to see the players who are paying attention and to have them do something with that attention. But it's very rare that you see any players or any in any sport galvanize around a single issue, even the ones that affect them directly when it comes to collective bargaining. they They are just usually very... Reticent to get involved, and it's time that they should. It's nice to see Kobe Bryant and to see some of the players actually doing more than than what we've seen. Even if it does look puny, at least it's a start.
4: We're talking to Howard Bryant from ESPN, the magazine, uh, about the fact that five players did uh, raise their hands in a don't-shoot gesture as they walked onto the field for their game, playing as the St. Louis Rams uh, on Sunday. It does seem as though this wheel has to be reinvented every time. One of the things you pointed out last September was there was, at least among NBA players, who may be the most politically fluid of the group of of major league professional athletes. uh, But, you know, NBA players seemed to figure out pretty quickly that they had to uh, Something to say about the Trayvon Martin case, especially LeBron and the and Miami Heat, and then obviously the Donald Sterling stuff, the Clippers owner. That's right in their backyard, uh, so they had things to say. But th- there doesn't this doesn't ever seem to gather any momentum. Now here we are with Ferguson, and you know, I mean, maybe you're not that up on the issues. It's pretty hard not to know about. For you have to work.
0: No, exactly. You have to work hard not to be. And I, and and, once, and you're right. And I and I think that the players. I think that the players have come up small in a lot of ways, and I think it's a question of what you choose to emphasize. I think in watching this, there does feel to me to be sort of a tipping point, a sort of this the shattering of this myth of post-racialization in this country. That that Ferguson and and it's not just Ferguson. Let's remember, you, you know, you said it just a, a few moments ago. Go back to what the Miami Heat did with Trayvon Martin, and let's not forget Eric Garner in New York, and let's not forget Tamir Rice, the young kid in Cleveland who was shot, and now you've got Mike Brown on top of that as well. And so there are so many examples that it it all becomes very difficult to ignore, especially if you're an African-American athlete, because for you, race is not just a topic. It's something that does define you, whether you want it to or not. And it's not something you can necessarily check out of no matter how much money you have. I think that's one of the interesting things for me in watching this is that you see that, that even all of the gazillions of dollars that Kobe Bryant has didn't stop him from saying, look, the Justice Department needs to be fixed. The justice system, the legal system needs to be fixed or this is going to happen over and over again. It's nice to see that the, that the players remember that they're citizens too.
4: It it also seems as though, you know, the the things that militate against Speaking out for players are also the things that that argue in favor of it. So yeah, obviously they're they're trying to be very popular brand names. Uh, as such, they don't want to sell to just one group or another. They want to be appealing to everybody. Um, on the other hand, the NFL is you know the most powerful entertainment organization or whatever superlative you want to heap on the NFL. It has a reach like nobody else's, and and certainly somebody who who was pretty comfortable ignoring what uh, you know Kanye West or Chris Rock or or somebody else might. Have to say about something is it might be less. Even I think the, the one of the reasons the St. Louis cops uh, reacted as as sharply as they did, as harshly as they did to this, is they're all football fans. They're all turning on the uh, on the game. They're all watching the game, and, and the players come out and say something that's uh, contrary to to what they think and what they believe. But football penetrates so much. These are African American celebrities that almost nobody can ignore the way maybe somebody might ignore. You know, as I say, Kanye or Chris Rock or or somebody else.
0: Sure. And the the police also reacted the way they did for another reason. And that reaction was because they are used to having their own way, that they're used to not being challenged. And to be challenged made them feel like this was some sort of anti-law enforcement position. And it was in some ways if law enforcement believes it can shoot to kill whenever it wants. This is this is what confrontation is all about. This is what the free speech is all about, where you have a right to challenge and let's not forget who they serve. They are supposed to be serving their community, and if their community does not feel served, then the community has a right to say something, and they seem not to be used to that. And And I think that, sure, on the one hand, it complicates your Sunday enjoyment if the guy whose jersey you have doesn't really like the job that you're doing. Yeah, that does complicate it, but you know what? We're all adults here. Let's sort of find a way through it. Maybe there's a reason why they feel discontent.
4: Um, Howard Brighton, last question. I'm wondering if also the, the fairly muted nature of the NFL's stance on this, the NFL players, NFL franchises, I mean, if it really is down on this occasion to five players from the Rams, has a little bit to do with the NFL status right now. I mean, they, the NFL is having a lot of trouble selling itself, I don't know how much trouble they're having, but they're going through a crisis of selling themselves as a morally— palatable organization, I mean an organization that has to work out a a question like the Ray Rice question in public, uh, uh, an organization that has clearly suppressed medical evidence about concussions. and Maybe there was sort of a discomfort uh, in feeling like a a digestible moral voice about anything at a moment when so much moral outrage is directed at them.
0: Well, it's actually something else I think. It's very difficult to organize a whole bunch of players in different cities. It wasn't as though it, it, that's a question of leadership. Should somebody have taken the lead and say, hey, look, we want to have a mass demonstration for Ferguson? Sure, that could have happened. But if it didn't happen, then there's no way you were going to get all 32 teams to come out together. And also, you have to remember, when you walk into that room, when you walk into the locker room, you've got factions and cliques and everything else in there. and You don't have uniformity in, in, in position. Obviously, some players... Some players are extremely vocal about what happened at Ferguson. You look at Ben Watson, the tight end for the New Orleans Saints, who wrote on Facebook very eloquently about how disappointed all of this was making him. But it's not as though you walk in and there's a consensus. All those players are all from different parts of the country with different backgrounds, and and it's a very difficult thing to get consensus on. But their bottom line is one of leadership. If you're going to organize a mass boycott or a mass protest or a mass demonstrations of of something, somebody's got to take the lead. And it doesn't look like that was happening. This looked like somebody, you know, the the five guys, Kenny Britt, in the in the locker room of the Rams said, "Hey, let's do this on our own. It doesn't have to be bigger than five people. This is what we feel, and let's express ourselves." And they did.
4: Howard Bryant, uh, great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. All right, we're going to come back with a segment with uh, Connecticut's uh, beloved and actually America's beloved author, Wally Lamb, who's now a movie mogul and executive producer. We'll find out more about that after this.
1: Hey, 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 people, what the hell is going on? All
4: right, we're back. Ah, the life of a writer, a quiet, contemplative, uh, just you and all those letters uh, being typed out up under the screen. Ah, the life of an executive producer, I'm guessing a very different thing. Uh, Wally Lamb is now both of those. He's been uh, an acclaimed and very successful novelist now for, uh, well, more than a decade. Is it two decades yet, Wally? Are you, you yeah, it's two decades plus. Uh, Colin,
3: what's all?
4: Hi, Wally. Um, so um, Wishing and Hoping, your delightful Christmas novel, has now been turned into a Lifetime movie. It premieres this Saturday uh, on, uh, at 8 p.m. on Lifetime. Um, first of all, um, tell us how the, the, this, this adaptation—a lot of people have been waiting forever for the movie version of She's Come Undone, or I Know This yeah. Much Is True, or, but, but so this one, this new baby, uh, got up under the screen a lot faster. How did that happen?
3: Uh, well, uh, uh, the story begins at Ryan's Delhi up there in um, is that Vernon, I guess. Uh, I uh, accepted a lunch date with uh, Andrew Gernhard, who was a former student when I taught at North Free Academy. And uh, he's now a producer uh, for Synthetic Cinema International. And, uh, and uh, I thought it was the same old, same old, uh, you know, as far as my experience with Hollywood. Uh, would you like to have lunch? Oh, OK, sure. I'll go up there. And uh, we started talking about, uh, you know, the film and, uh, and the adaptation. And uh, next thing you know, you got, uh, you got funding from Lifetime. And uh, whereas my experience with, uh, with Hollywood is, uh, oh, we're passionate to do this, and then nothing ever happened, uh, this was quite the opposite.
4: So whenever you do a movie for television, one of the things that you have to deal with are sensor questions. And one thing that I've discovered recently doing a little bit of research on this is now that we have this proliferation of different kinds of cable channels, it seems like they all have their different standards and practices. You know, AMCs are different from FXs. And so with light – with not that this is a particularly, you know – Sordid uh, novel. Wishing and Hoping is a delightful Christmas story, but there are some things in it, including uh, an off-color joke, which you and I know really was told on the Ranger Andy show. I'm amazed. Yeah. I was. I'm amazed I wasn't cast as Ranger Andy for this particular movie. But anyway, um, so um, h- h- how did things work there? As you started talking about the actual material that was going to go up on the screen, did you have to deal with their Bureau of Standards and Practices?
3: Oh yeah, that's a great question, uh, Colin. Uh the uh that uh, sort of off color joke that you're referring to, which uh many people of a certain age will probably remember or uh or will have heard the uh, the legend of uh the joke that shut down the Ranger Andy show on channel three. Um uh that does make it into into the film. Um, standards and practices were uh were you know, the lawyers uh for a lifetime were concerned about several things. Um, but uh you know that's sort of one of the one of the comic highlights of the whole film. uh the whole Ranger Andy sequence uh in the movie is just hysterical so um yeah, so hopefully uh i mean uh thankfully they uh they let that one go by uh but they did catch other things, for instance um, you know back in nineteen sixty four uh you called African Americans colored people and mm-hmm. um they uh they put up a red flag on that. so uh, it was interesting to see what they let go uh, and what they
4: uh what they thought so I, I'm curious to know i mean uh, all kidding aside well, you, being the executive producer or one of the two executive producers of this, I assume that means, and I did uh, see you a few times during the filming, and you looked okay. uncustomarily tired uh and and frazzled <laughs> i mean, Is this sort of like a daily thing where where the, there's a problem that you have to solve it, and if so, what kinds of problems are those?
3: Well, you know, executive producer is a title that really, in my case, meant consultant. So uh, I gave feedback uh, to the screenwriter, John Doolin. who did a great job uh, with, uh, a, you know, a, a real challenge as far as adapting uh, the story to a screenplay. Uh, but I also was able to put my two cents in on casting. We got we got a terrific cast of uh, of uh, you know juvenile actors uh, in in various roles, but also uh, you know some of the some of the major stars, um, and so I was able to, you know, sort of, uh, you know, give feedback on that, and uh, you know, uh, I was on the on the film set pretty much every day, uh, more getting in the way than you know helping out. But uh, <laughs> it was, you know, it was all fun, and I told them right from the start that I really wanted to uh, understand, you know, what movie making was about, and uh, luckily, uh, Synthetic Cinema invited me into the process, and. Uh, uh it's been it's been wonderfully uh, distracting as far
4: as my writing career, but uh, a whole lot of fun. And, and you know, I mean, you, you, uh, you've been a literary celebrity for a really long time now, but now you're working with Molly Ringwald and Meatloaf and Sherry O'Terry. Chevy Chase is essentially the voice of Wally Lamb's writing, right? He's sort of the, the kind of narrator. Um, were you starry-eyed? I mean, do you, did, you, did it feel kind of exciting to be working with famous people like that?
3: Yeah, it did for about the first five minutes, and then you realize that they're all, uh, you know, they're all real people and, you know, really quite nice. Um, I do remember when my wife and I were, were driving down to the set in, uh, which happened to be at North Free Academy that day. And I was going to meet meat Loaf And I remember the conversation in the car saying like, you know, I said to my wife, oh, you know, do I call him meat? Do I call him Mr. Loaf? You know, what, you know, what it uh, but he was, he was really quite funny. And, uh, and uh, he plays a he plays an alcoholic Monsignor. Uh, <laughs> so uh, he does a bang up job with that. Uh, and but you know Molly was great and uh uh Conchata Ferro who uh plays the mean the man who uh, all the kids are, are afraid of. Uh she uh, people may recognize her as Bertha from uh the sitcom two and a half Men. She plays the, the housekeeper there, but uh she is a terror in a habit. Uh and uh, and
4: off-stage, a uh, very, very nice woman. Um, Wally Lim, it's so great to, to hear about this. We're all looking forward to, to Saturday night. Actually, I'll be moderating in the Connecticut Forum, but I'll have a T-vote, uh, but it is, it is Saturday night uh, on Lifetime. Wishing and hoping and, uh, makes it to the screen. Thanks for joining us today.
3: Oh, my pleasure, Colin. Uh, that's all, uh, all of your listeners, and happy holidays to
4: all. All right. Uh, we're going to take a break here, and we're going to come back. You're going to meet um, a Twitter celebrity, and a, an academic, nihilistic Twitter celebrity.
1: Wishing, and hoping, and thinking, and praying, planning, and dreaming each night. I think it takes a lot of guts to go head to head with the new grumpy cat christmas movie Today's show was produced by tucker ives and me Kyone wolf our intern is jackie filson greg hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at wnpr colin the part of bill curry was played by aaron rogers for show pages articles and videos of the faith middleton show staff's audition for the role of annette funicello in wishing and hoping visit our website wnpr.org on tomorrow's show why weren't there more women composers and now Back to Colin,
4: and just to quickly expand on that. So we're going to talk tomorrow. uh, First of all, there's uh, kind of an interesting controversy about the possibility that Anna Magdalena Bach um, wrote or assisted in the composition of some of Bach's most famous famous works. We're also going to talk about women composers um, like uh, Clara Schumann, Fanny Mendelssohn, uh, Alma Mahler. Janet Beethoven. All right, I made that one up. Uh, who who maybe didn't get their due at that time, but also sort of talk about how that works even going forward. If you think of the first eighty years of the American songbook or of American show tunes, there really I mean, there's Carol Lee and there's there's Dorothy Fields, but there aren't that many women composers. Women composers uh, only you know really within I don't know maybe the last. 30 to 50 years, has it sort of even been something you could really talk about? So why would that be the case? I mean, women certainly have at least 50% of the musical talent in the world. So why is there such a lopsided uh, imbalance? Anyway, uh, we'll talk about that. I suppose all imbalances are implicitly lopsided. But you know what I mean. Uh, We're going to move on, though. (laughs) We're going to talk to our guest for this segment. We're very excited to have with us Eric Jarosinski. He is the editor editor of the Twitter feed uh, uh, at Nine Quarterly. Uh, He'll be giving a talk at Trinity College this Thursday called Philosophy in 140 Characters, an evening with Nine Quarterly. Uh, First of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. So um, first of all, let's begin with the creation of this persona, this um, uh, this presence on Twitter, uh, this uh, individual or or entity uh, tweeting uh, about nihilism and tweeting dark Teutonic thoughts uh, about just about everything. Uh, This all kind of began or, or arises from your previous career in academia. Tell us that story of that shift.
2: Uh, Well, uh, let's see. The story is somewhat quickly told in that uh, I made a career out of dark Teutonic thoughts, as you describe them, uh, and trying to write long books about them. And I uh, decided that wasn't actually the best combination for me, and I was really drawn to the brevity of Twitter, um, to a different type of writing, and to a different audience, and it's what I've been doing ever since.
4: Um, just to sort of give people a sense, uh, I compiled a few of my favorite recent ones. Uh, because one of the things you do, there's sort of, it's just sort of a running
2: commentary. I mean, you've done, what, uh, how, many tw- how many tweets have you done now? Well, uh, several tens of thousands I was told that the quantity is uh, equal to that of Thomas Mann's famous novel <laughs> uh, The Magic Mountain uh, I, I would say that the quality uh, might might surpass it as well but yes. um, I, I wouldn't want to go that far
4: so I think it's more than 34,000 tweets or a magic mm-hmm. a magic mountain worth of um, uh, of tweets <laughs> and uh, that's now actually a universal measure um, <laughs> 30, 34,000 tweets is considered a Thomas Mann uh, so mm-hmm. uh, some of the tweets. So what you do you kind of keep up a raging, uh, a running and raging uh, commentary against whatever reality you're in or whatever you're seeing. There are certain tropes you like to repeat. So uh, on either Black Friday or then or about, you said, yes, rage, rage against the machine, then buy it. Uh, one of your recent favorite tropes is the sort of series of, of um, categories with colons after them. My, my God, dead. My hope, lost. My boarding, pro- my boarding group, Not a priority. Uh, But a few days before that, it was, my God, dead, my Friday, black. My game, 25% on, 75% off. Uh, Another tweet recently, my favorite time of the year for reading Dostoevsky in a thin coat in a drafty room, then sharpening an axe and visiting the neighbors. So th- this is sort of um, well. Uh, I should let you describe it, but but this these are really funny tweets. Um, they are for me anyway. Uh, as I'm reading them, I'm chuckling out loud. People around me are looking at me, wondering what it is that I'm laughing at, and would be almost impossible to explain what I'm laughing about. But what are you what are you going for in these tweets?
2: Well, yeah, also somewhat hard for me to explain. Uh, I would say um, it's always interesting for me to hear someone read them because I imagine them read much more slowly in a way and uh, actually in a much deeper, darker sort of Werner Herzogian tone of some sort. Uh, But I would say that what I'm after more than anything is – a way to, to kind of play with the rhythms of, of Twitter, of Internet, of the language, of marketing, uh, language that we've all become very familiar with, but usually selling you deodorant and not Kafka or Nietzsche. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested in a way of taking a language that, that surrounds us um, and doing something a little bit differently with it, and Twitter's a, a good medium for doing that and and one of the things that happens of
4: course when you tweet is that you sort of never know who's going to read your tweet um and of course we also know from you that on the internet, no one knows you're not a pipe. Uh, so Now, that, that, that would be a tweet that required a certain amount of background <laughs> for a person to understand and laugh well, at. Well, that's kind of
2: a running joke. Uh, Rene Magritte does make frequent appearances, and his his not a pipe makes even more frequent appearances uh, or non-appearances. But, but, um, but do you
4: have people – I mean, I, I read one piece where you kind of alluded to having um, – a running battle uh, at one point, I assume this was like right out there for everyone to see on Twitter, with Joyce Carol Oates. I should say, we're extremely close. You couldn't slide a credit card between me (laughs) and uh, Joyce Carol Oates, but but go ahead. That was
2: uh, simply a misunderstanding. I think we'd probably get along just fine in real life, but uh, just some of the technicalities of Twitter led to a misunderstanding, but um, I think we'll patch that up one of these days.
4: Um, By the way, we're live here in the afternoon as we go along here. If you have questions, if you think you could be a good uh, Twitter celebrity, uh, give us a call, 860-275-7266, or if you're already among the... Fifty six or 57,000 fans and followers of the nine quarterly, uh, give us a call, 860-275-7266. Now, I mean, one of the things that is interesting about this is uh, I read a piece about you on Slate where they were alluding to the fact that uh, that maybe um, in making the decision to leave academia and do this instead – um, uh, Eric Jaroszynski was aware of the fact that the average academic treatise has three readers. You know, and I mean, your, your your published dissertation or something has three readers, whereas you have, I think, it's fifty six or fifty seven thousand followers.
2: Yeah, it's a little more than that, no, but but yeah, it's significantly more. It's it's true. I mean, I would say that. I mean, to be. To uh, counter this quasi-heroic narrative of that, um, it was pretty clear that that decision would have been made for me if I hadn't decided to leave. I certainly – I just – as I said, I found that writing books wasn't for me, and that was uh, a lot of what my job was about. I I love teaching, but um, it it was largely the language of academia and uh, a cumbersome language, a tiresome language, a highly specialized language, which has its place, but it just wasn't, wasn't for me.
4: Now, one of the things about Twitter is it is for the most part, it hasn't been a richly textured intellectual environment. And, yeah, you know, in mentioning Joyce Carol Oates, I mean, uh, Joyce Carol Oates is a a little bit unusual in that she discovered Twitter um, and she seems to like it. Um, I had to wa- look very, very carefully to decide that it wasn't a fake Twitter account because another aspect of all this, obviously, is there are a lot of people tweeting on Twitter who are not actually the people that they claim to be. And y- there are a few others. I mean, you probably know them better than I do. I'm a- I was interested when Margaret Atwood started tweeting, and she really mm-hmm. does appear to enjoy her Twitter account very much. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there aren't, I mean, number, another, uh, among the people who would get a Magritte joke, uh, on Twitter. That seems to be a very, very small subset of the Twitterverse.
2: Yes? No? Well, you know, that's uh, people often think that. Uh, I think one thing that I've found in doing what I do is that there are actually quite a few people out there uh, who have passing knowledge of any number of things I'm writing about. Um, and often what I'm calling upon is simply my own passing knowledge of something. Um, but for me, the trick is that of taking um, some little surface knowledge of, of a poem I learned in high school or something from Wordsworth and seeing what can I do with that one line that I know? Is there some interesting twist uh, that I can apply to that? Um, and I'm usually working with things that everyone uh, uh, who at least is, has, has been to college for some amount of time has encountered uh, one or two of these names uh, 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 in some context. And so for me, um, I'd say that there are more people out there, one, who, who are interested in these things, recognize it. Um, people, I think, like smart jokes. Um, and the other thing is that, yeah, there are certainly some writers you can point to who are on Twitter or spent time on it. Um, but the other thing I think that maybe is more significant are sort of the comedians who are out there who got a start on Twitter and essentially use Twitter to do what they do. Um, someone I read a lot of when I first got on Twitter is Rob Delaney, uh, who I didn't know at all before then. And... Um, who I think has really uh, done a lot for, for for the medium in terms of exploring how to use it, both one, uh, uh, as, as, as a tool for, for, for writing, um, but also reaching new audiences. He does interesting things with politics and, and, and humor, et cetera. So he's just one example. But I would say there are a lot of people out there doing it. Um, a lot of what I do now um, has some connection to Germany, and I've gotten to know writers in Germany who use Twitter a fair amount. So people are out there. It's uh, breaking through to larger audiences is another question, but they're certainly out there. My
4: favorite uh, Rob Delaney tweet, I mean, I'm not a, st- a student of him, but uh-huh. was was, uh, I bet I'd be good at sex. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. I like that. But I think one of the things that <laughs> Ro- that Rob Delaney and uh, other people like that figured out is that this is one of the really good uses of Twitter. You know, I mean, we yeah, just okay. got through having a conversation earlier in the show about athletes expressing the- themselves politically. and They often will uh-huh. try to do that on Twitter, and it's a bad idea because, uh-huh. you know, most opinions require a certain amount uh, of subtlety. I mean, in in order to explain your position on Gaza, you know, it's probably Uh not a good idea to use 140 characters.
2: Yeah, it's interesting you point to that as an example. That's one of the issues I actually stayed away from a fair amount because um, I couldn't encapsulate what it is that I would want to say about that uh, and what it is that I do. There are other things I don't stray away from, um, but there definitely are issues like that where I recognize the limitations. Um, And as far as Twitter goes, I mean, it's great power and danger is in its immediacy. um, As we all know in the internet, it's... uh, uh, who out there hasn't written something they 've regretted after after sending it um and that happens on Twitter even more rapidly um so so yeah it, it it comes with its dangers. I would say in general um i uh write things that are primarily jokes, some things that are that are less joke like uh somewhat more in the tradition of the philosophical aphorism um which you know is some an attempt to say something. In a concise kind of pithy way but also that it should contain something larger somehow or something more – some more general truth or statement on the truth. Um, and But I would say in general, uh, Twitter is best for, for, for jokes, the rhythm of the joke, um, which has been with us a long time. Um, but this is a medium that I think is particularly well suited for it
4: do you have do you have a favorite example of, of any of those i mean
2: I, there's i realize there's nothing
4: more self-compromising than uh-huh. reciting one's own tweets or reading <laughs> one's own tweets uh, i mean yeah. i yeah, there's a sinking feeling that any of us gets when they say yeah. when you say i you know what i tweeted today i tweeted <laughs> i mean that's a horrible feeling on the other hand you have put yourself in this position you are yeah, speaking of course to of course music.
2: i don't know i, I th- I would say that uh, uh one that I liked it was a long time ago was just something like uh signifying nothing is harder than it looks. Uh <laughs> that was that was the kind of thing that I liked. Because I, I liked a lot of um Sound and Fury uh theme tweets and uh and certainly nihilism is one of my favorite themes. So uh that was the kind of thing that that uh kind of encapsulated a lot of what I'm interested in or um Uh, For instance, today's Monday uh, sort of genre of what I do is uh, I write a lot about Mondays, um, and I think uh, today was something like Monday um, uh, – what? Monday is is capitalism temporarily demystified or something like this, (laughs) so the sort of definitional – kind of of joke, right, Uh, which in a way is something that we know in the American tradition pretty well from something like Ambrose Pierce's uh, The Devil's Dictionary works along the same principles. So it's, um, you know, something like that. for me, uh, I've seen sort of the way in which I write has changed a lot over time. I think most people who spend time on Twitter realize that after a while, um, that you start to write for the medium in a lot of ways, and uh, that's something I've, I've, I've seen myself doing over time.
4: The uh, when it, yeah, Speaking of those sort of uh, jokes about uh, Monday, one of your favorite tropes of late has been the uh, it's not you, it's me construction. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not you, it's me. So one of them recently, and this all has to do obviously with the advent of the sh- shopping season, it's not you commercial. It's your exploitation by religious holidays. Uh, I love that, though, sort of the standing on the head uh, of what we what it is. Yeah, sort
2: of classic inversion. I mean, that's, again, something have been with us you know, for, since ancient times. But uh, in a way, what works best on Twitter is classical rhetoric. Uh, it's something that makes me wish I knew more about classical rhetoric, actually. Uh, but it's um, – there's a lot of – a lot of inversion of cliches, uh, although, uh, as a wise man once wrote, uh, this can also easily become the cliché of inversion. That—that um, that was me. <laughs> that was you. Um, well, so see, <laughs> so you tweet you tweet not as a person, but as a thing, right?
4: You tweet as uh-huh. the nine quarterly, and then there's this uh, picture of a. Uh, of Adorno, who I confess mm-hmm. I, uh, of whom I confess I know nothing. Um, mm-hmm. So first of all, talk about the creation of that. I mean, a lot of people tweet as you know, you can make up a fake Roman Catholic cardinal. You, you can do a lot of things, but people usually sure. tweet as a person, as opposed to a quarterly, a journal, which as far as I know, exists nowhere else except in your Twitter feed.
2: <laughs> uh, well, it exists now in print. Uh, in Germany, it runs in a weekly paper um, as a column, but a column is saying a bit much. It's really just four lines, uh, but starting from a tweet, really, and expanding a little bit. Um, But uh, for me, the idea was one of uh, a publication, um, which in a way is is about uh, a perspective more than anything, and a perspective which can be taken towards anything, but at the same time with a face. So this cartoon face of uh, this rather uh, uh, dour-looking philosopher, is important, I think, because that's a lot of what gives it its voice and its effect. And so in a way, it does both things at once. Of, of it has a personality, has a face, but also has the license to be pretty free-ranging what it is you talk about. Um, because I think that the one problem with sort of creating a persona is you can easily paint yourself into a box where um, you only have uh, a couple of things you can talk about somehow. Um, and uh, I think for me, it's been important that I can um, cover lots of ground.
4: Uh, we're talking to Eric Jarosinski. He's the editor of the Twitter feed at Nine Quarterly. He's giving a talk at Trinity College this Thursday called Philos- Philosophy in 140 Characters, uh, an evening with Nine Quarterly. Now, the, one of the questions, I mean, I feel like I'm your father now, sort of saying, what do you expect to do with this young man? Um, <laughs> yeah. But it is is—it is a question that's going to be asked, right? I mean, in in some senses, you've accomplished something that would be impressive to a lot of people. I mean, if people who are even sort of agents and book editors and acquisition people for publishing companies if you've got i don't know 60,000 followers whatever it is that you've got on twitter that's mm-hmm. it's a lot it's enough so that you're sort of viable <laughs> you know for yeah, well, for something
2: Well, that's the thing. I mean, actually, it's uh, what's been happening over the last year um, has been that it's gotten that kind of attention um, and it's made that possible. You know, I've started to move into old media, you know, just just in time for the death of print. (laughs) So my my timing is apt. Uh, But largely uh, I think what's being recognized, one, is that there is a a type of writing – and I'm not alone in this by any means um, – that's coming from Twitter that – but the trick is sort of can it translate into print? Um, Because what it has going for it is that you have sort of a built-in audience that might come with you, you know, to print, uh, say, to uh, reading a newspaper column, uh, to buying your book, whatever it happens to be. So it has a little – to use a term that Adorno is credited with, a culture industry that that it's connected to, right, your your Twitter feed. Um, But at the same time, uh, it really is a question of – can, can you turn tweets into a book? And for me, that meant inventing a somewhat different form uh, that starts with a tweet but goes beyond it. And I think that's kind of the trick and the experiment and uh, I'll be eager to see if it works out. Um, it will be out next year. Uh, uh, so Grove Atlantic is, is, is publishing that. So they're taking a chance on this form and I'm um, happy that they are. It seems to me there's the the,
4: the merchandise possibilities, you know, one nihilistic thought a day calendars, you know, where you you, you tear them off the pad or something like that. There's a lot of – Yeah,
2: no, sure. You could do all that stuff. I mean for me, I'm a little careful about that too. I mean I certainly need the money, but Mm -hmm. this also means something to me. You know, it's – uh, you know, I've sold a few T-shirts, uh, whatever, but uh, it doesn't really make any money. It's it's for me just sort of a, a fun part of it because people wanted stuff. They started asking me for stuff um, like that um, so when you, there is kind of an identity.
4: When you it. say this means something to you and you don't want to put that uh, uh, at risk by over-commercializing mm-hmm. it. Well, of course, one of the mm-hmm. things you do is make fun of commercialism a lot anyway. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. what do you think you would be putting at risk if, say, I approached well, you with a plan for yeah, a, a that's, juicer you know, or that's
2: something? A good, yeah, that's a good question. But I guess what I'd say is that um, uh, this did come about for me as a result of a pretty personal crisis in terms of my own career. And, you know, something I'd spent uh, the better part of my life working on was, you know, getting a Ph.D. in German, getting a good job, um, getting in the position to uh, essentially gain lifelong employment in that job if I would only finish this book, uh, which essentially dissolved in 30,000 tweets. Um mm-hmm. And so, for me uh, but that 's where a passion was for me. It meant something uh, uh, significant to me, still does um, and the community that 's grown up around it means a lot to me as well and I think that that what people identify with most is um, you know, Despite all the jokes, there is, there is some kernel of truth in what I'm doing that's connected to me. And so um, you know, when I've seen attempts to replicate what it is that I'm doing, I find that a lot of it is, is merely technique and there isn't a lot of um, connection to, to, to something that um, might have meant something more uh, to, to the person behind it. So, so, so for me, I guess I'm worried in losing a certain uh, uh, authenticity, although at the same time, of course, I'm playing with notions of authenticity all the time
4: i 'm um, going to read another of your tweets, and i 'm going to do it uh, slower this time and in a more <laughs> appropriately doleful right. way and then by okay. then, I have a question I want to ask about it yeah, a home for the holidays somewhere in the middle of where nowhere used to be before things went bad, and it left town for good. <laughs> so um so I liked that and there was a lot of circularity there and I really had to sort of think a mm-hmm. little bit about that and what the actual mm-hmm. antecedent of the word it was and all things mm-hmm. like that. But it also made me wonder, it kinda of go to go back to um uh, you know at the end of mother night uh, Vonnegut says we are what we pretend to be so we must be careful of what we pretend to be and you I think about somebody like Stephen Colbert or I think about somebody like you you've assumed this persona here with whom I assume is in fact darker and more Teutonic and more nihilistic than you were on a daily basis prior to doing it to to in, in any sense do you feel it kind of taking over a little bit or just the necessity of tweeting so many times per day and kind of literally living inside this costume. Is the costume becoming you at all?
2: Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, one's tempted to say yes, because it makes an interesting kind of theoretical point and a nice sort of, you know, Borges story or something. But I would say that more than anything, um I haven't felt that it's been that restrictive. I mean, so for, you know, even putting it in the way of, you know, compelled to write so much every day, I I don't feel that way. If I ever feel compelled to write um, or that I just have to keep this up, uh, I don't think i do it. Um, Well, I guess I'm more
4: asking, you know, do you, when you look at things now, do you immediately go, what's the dark Strindbergian take (laughs)
2: that that I can make on this particular thing? I I think I probably did that anyway. Uh, You know, it's just that it was more a conversation with myself and... Uh, it didn't necessarily lead to anywhere good, um, and I think now what I'm doing is largely that of uh, what is the sort of dark impulse this might uh, uh, trigger in me, but what what can I do with that? And what that usually means is, you know, citing it. In Mm -hmm. a a joke, uh, but then also doing something else with it, uh, because if it were simply that that darkness, it it wouldn't have the other effect.
4: We're going to have to wrap this up right now, but uh, Eric Jarosinski, so great to talk to you. Thursday, you appear at Trinity, uh, and we're ending with our tribute to the new Star Wars trailer, which is an event in and of itself.
1: All right. How about we name the new Star Wars series How I Met My Father? No. Um, Too old for this Sith? Nah. Boba Fett and a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day? Mm, Actually, yeah, that works.